I'm going to talk tonight on the subject of purpose. We heard something about purpose last week or Zerubbabel or being a Pentecostal or something, but I want to use the part of purpose. Purpose. You see, I looked up the word purpose in the dictionary as a starting point for us tonight. It contains a lot of different definitions. There's a noun form and a verb form, but let me give you the noun definition of purpose because it will apply to what I want to say. It means an intended or desired result, aim, or goal, or an end. An intended, desired goal being met. That's purpose. Or another word was the reason for which anything is done. So that brings me to some questions, which leads me into what I want to say anyway. Purpose. Intended goal. I ask myself, why is there a church on planet Earth? A body of believers who have had a similar, same experience, having the same joy about one Lord and one Savior puts us all together in a unit, and he calls it a church or a body of believers. Why? Why do we need that? We obviously need it if God formed it. Would you agree with that? God said, I will build my church. If he is doing it, then we need to be in it. There's a purpose for that. It has an intended goal. It has something that God is aiming for. And it's for me to find out. It's not an option. Being a believer for me is not an option, and this church is not an option. Everybody that's a Christian doesn't go to the same meeting. Of course, there's no building that big. But I know where I am, and I know where I should be, and I have a purpose. God has a purpose. There is a purpose for me being here. There's a purpose for you being here. There is something we're after. There is an intended end. I asked myself, why did I become a part of this church? What was my purpose? What's God's purpose in putting me here with you? What is my goal here? What's supposed to happen to me here? Our fundamental thinking about church in this hour is it's a place on the corner where people go to act better and to feel better, and it's for social goodness as much as anything, help the poor and contribute here and ring a bell on something. And it's sort of, that's the goal. But as we read the Bible, which upsets a lot of people, if you explain it anyway, when you begin to read the Bible, you begin to realize that God has something much deeper than just coming together that he wants to happen. He wants to effect a change in all the people that are called believers. When he brings them together, he has a purpose. It won't stop until it's over. God wants to effect a change in everybody here. And the change is described for us in the scripture. As God teaches us, it unfolds like a book. And we begin to see what we never really saw before by just, at least I did, and I grew up in church. I went to church every week, but it never meant anything. But when I got saved and I got serious and God touched my heart and I began to want to know what was there, it all began to open up and you begin to see a bigger picture. 
something that is bigger than you and life and everything else. It's what God has for me. And when I ask myself a question, what part do I play in all this? Where do I fit? What am I supposed to do? How will you change me? How is all of this going to happen? Because I see it. And we go from glory to glory to glory. And he changes us, he said in 2 Corinthians 4. And all these things are supposed to happen. And I ask myself, if that's your purpose for me, how are you going to do it? Because I sat in church like my parents. My parents sat in church their whole life. I don't think there was ever any realization of something deeper with God in all of that. My dad was a Catholic. My mother was a protester and a Protestant. And I never observed anything in all my years in a religious home of any purpose for all of that. We went to church because we're supposed to. We sang hymns because it was on the little bulletin. My dad did what he did because that's the way he learned to do it. What did it mean? It just meant that's how you do it. That's the way you're geared as far as religion is concerned. So I think, you know, there's something deeper. Paul was talking about purpose last week. And there's something deeper than that. E Ephesians 2. Would you turn to Ephesians 2 for just a moment? And let's read verse 22, Ephesians 2 and verse 22, speaking of the church and what God is doing, as well as how he's going to do it. He said, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, if I understand that correctly, God brings his people together in various places. Body here, a body there, a body here. He brings his people together, puts them into a body with desired effects. Each person has to contribute his part. We'll see that in just a moment. But the Bible says God is doing something in which he's going to dwell. His presence will be known. It'll be sensed. It will be something different than what the world knows. It'd be a habitation of God in the spirit because God is building his people together. He's putting his people together. Now, <laughs> you look back historically, I do, and I haven't seen much of that. There are churches everywhere by the bunches. Most of them can't get along with each other. And even in the church I grew up in, it was hard for some people in that church to get along together, let alone being built together, functioning together, recognizing together, loving and caring and helping together. Never saw much of that. But you see, if things like that aren't happening, then what God is doing is not happening. But I want to be a part of that. There's a purpose in all of that. It's going to glorify God. Look in Ephesians 4 and look at verse 11. Old familiar scriptures to all of us there. Because this is how he's going to do this. This is how God is going to build this church. This is the way which God is going to build you and me and bring us to a place that it seems like the church has never been before. This is how he's going to do it. And he set some in the church, verse 11, 
And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some pastors and some teachers. Verse 12, for this purpose or for this reason, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministering, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what he's doing. Ministering is a word that we get our word deacon from. That is one who serves others. Now we have to be taught how to do that. You can tell me how to do it, but there is a thing we call exhortation, which brings it out and keeps bringing it out. For the work of ministering, and he said this perfecting, the first word used, the perfecting, the word simply means putting together in an orderly way, like when the fishermen's nets were torn and they were sitting on the beach one morning mending their nets so they wouldn't lose their fish. You know, they had to put it back together because they were torn. That's the word mending and the word perfecting are the same word. It's a picture of what ministry is called to do, is to take Flawed human beings, fallen human beings, weak human beings, like all of us were. There was not a good one amongst the whole bunch of us. There was not one who was above need. Every one of us, we don't, may not even know it yet, but all of us have tremendous needs, spiritual needs. We'd like to think we're good at it, but we're not. We have needs. And God calls attention to those needs through these human vessels. In other words, God takes fallen people like us, sinful in our whole life, puts his spirit in us, and then he uses one of us to be a builder. That's not easy to do always. How many of you know that a preacher is no different than anybody else? He eats the same food, goes to the same places, needs a bathe like you do. Well, human beings. Flawed human beings. And the difference is that God does something special. He said here to the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, some kind of a special thing that God does that while you're as common as dirt, when that special thing is triggered, when that anointing that is placed in you when God triggers that and you begin to function in the calling that you have on your life, even your closest friends who you buddy up with at picnics and all that, they realize there's something different about what you're doing right now. Doesn't mean you're perfect. They know that. God knows that. None of us are perfect. But he uses people like us to lead people like us. That isn't always easy to do because you can't lead everybody. There are people who always know more than you do. There are always people who are smarter than you do. There are always people who have their own opinion different than what you have or they see it differently than you do. And you can't teach them, you can't lead them. They never fit, they never achieve. That purpose that God has for us, it never includes them because they don't want to be a part of it. So knowing that, you do the best you can with what you got. You know, if there were 10 people in here that didn't care if they were here or not, there might be 100 people here who really care, and you're worth whatever time and attention and anointing that God has to feed you. You're worth that. And this is what he's saying. But go on. He said, verse 13, until. This is a process that's going to take place, this 
humans building humans, ministry affecting God's people. And this is going to continue on until we all come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. How can the world can that be? Well, the perfect man means come to a completed goal. That's purpose. We finally are there without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that is quite a thought to be like that. The measure of the stature of the very fullness of Christ is what God points us to as the kind of people we're supposed to be. The kind of people we're supposed to be. God has projected in Christ the image that he wants to form in you and I. That Christ be birthed in you, comes forth in you, till it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That work of God, that transforming work, until, as Paul said, it's no longer I who live. This is Christ who lives in me. All my goals, my aspirations, my dreams, all the things I'm pursuing in this world suddenly came to an abrupt halt when they met Christ. And the redirection of his life, delivering me from things, opening my eyes to spiritual things, which begin to be more important to have than all the things you thought you wanted. Because all the things in the world were never designed to make you happy, only covetous. But when God shows you what he wants you to be, and I mean, if you stick around long enough and think of it long enough and listen hard enough or hearken, as the Bible says, to that, the Spirit of God will open your eyes and you'll begin to see what we're after, what this is all about. It's not church. It's not just going to a meeting. It's assembling ourselves together. Christ in our midst, a habitation of God in the Spirit, where needs are met, eyes are open, and joy and peace and edification comes so that we walk out of here more sure of what we're going to do than we were before we came in, more determined to be the kind of person that God wants us to be. And God uses ministry to do that. That's what the anointing is designed to do, is to open blind eyes, is to prick hearts that have never been pricked before. It's to open us up to his way and doing things the way he wants us to do. And he said that we henceforth be no more children. That's why people fight in the church, because they act like children. They're easily offended. They want this and want that, and that's my chair, not your seat, and why are you sitting there? And he said, be henceforth no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the people out there who are cunning and crafty. And verse 15, but he said, but speaking the truth in love, there's only one thing that will ever change us. Truth. Not half truth, not partial truth, but truth. The only thing that will ever bond us together, Colossians wrote, the only thing that is a true bond of unity is love. Love is affection, it's caring, it's compassion, it's other people before me stuff. It's something that God does. For me to live is Christ, and for me to love is to express Christ. For me to believe is to express Christ, because the very faith that I need to relate to God, he gives me that too. 
have the faith of Christ. You know, the Bible speaks of that. So all of these things here that we just talked about, the edifying of the body of itself in love, the next verse, all these parts, he said, are put together in a conclusion in verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined. That's the work, fitly joined, being built, joined together and compacted, that is tightened up by that which every joint supplies, and the joint is where two parts meet, he says, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, to do that, God uses people, ministries. The ordinary common people, ministry. Various ones have various gifts, various abilities. He puts them together so we can all benefit from it because every time an anointing comes on whoever God uses, it's for my good. I praise God for all that. Amen. So the purpose of ministry then is to bring all this about. This building, I don't know where Paul ever said he was a wise master builder, but he did refer to himself once as one of those builders that God uses in the church with the anointing that God gives to put people together. Without the anointing, about all you have is a personality, and, and you would, as the world says, he's cool. He's neat. Yeah, I like the way he talks about it because, you know, yeah, I really enjoy what this is. I don't care what you enjoy or what you hear. If it's not changing you, it's something wrong with it. Amen. Now, having said all that, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Now, concerning these men, these flawed human beings that have a special unction, on occasion, whenever they're where they should be doing what they're called to do. He said, obey them that have the rule over you. The word means to honor. Obey means, yes, whatever you tell me to do, I'll go do it. No, it means to honor, be respectful towards. It could be used as obey, but think of it in terms of honoring and being respectful. He said, obey them that have the rule or the leadership over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, every minister is accountable, just like we are all accountable. But in a different way, ministry is accountable. The Bible says he has to give an account for his people. He has to give an account for the ones that God puts you in front of. You have to know your sheep. I'm talking like a shepherd and a sheep now. You have to know your sheep. You need to know them. A thousand people have a hard time knowing you. You know that? The smaller, the more compact it gets. You know the people. You become aware of needs in the church. You become aware of certain people's needs or certain people's weaknesses. Or you become aware of the indifference of some people. Or you become aware of the fact that things, as I wanted to say Sunday, things aren't working the way the Bible says they're supposed to work. That things that are happening are not supposed to happen. I take that personal. 
and I'm not going to change what I said about it. But what I mean by personal is I don't blame you. Anybody who feels like you have fallen or failed or gone back or dropped the ball or whatever, you're pretty normal. You're not supposed to do that, but it happens. And I have never looked at somebody like that and said, well, why don't you just go to some other church? You're so embarrassing to me. No, I take it personal myself. Because you see, like a parent with a child that's a problem, you cannot help on days, especially when you're studying these things, what could I have said that might have changed that person from doing that? What could I have said? What subject could we have taught? If I was observant to the people like I'm supposed to be and paying attention to their needs and let the Spirit quicken you about things that you need to deal with, was I too busy running around too much and neglected to say things we should have said? I take it personal, not against you. A person who's fallen or failed in any way, you're not loved less by God because you had a bad day or because you made a bad decision. Because God will pick you up and get you going. You just can't quit. But when I see failure, I can't help about people outside of our church. My concern is right here in this room. And if people are not really doing well, it bothers me. Not because you're such a tragic person, but because what am I not saying? You know, I moved here. You came here from some other place. And 15 years ago, you're worse off now than you were when you got here. What's happened? Or after so many years, instead of coming to this kind of a stand, you're floundering or having a problem. I don't look down on you. If I did, I wouldn't talk to you. I look down on myself because I think, what's wrong? What are you not saying? Are we not preaching on healing enough? Are we not emphasizing that? Maybe I should have stood on top of the pulpit and screamed until the vein on your neck puffs out and turns real blue. Maybe we should have just made it dramatic. Everybody say, boy, what's his problem? His problem is the fact that what God has given us that's supposed to work for us <clears throat> ain't. Not the way it's supposed to. Sometimes you think, well, maybe we should just go to a person and say, what's wrong with you? What's for you? But then but with me, I think, what message can I preach without it becoming a personal attack? What can I say that will get her or his attention so that they can see that, boy, God wants you to do better? Or you're leaving something out, get a hold of that and strengthen this. Come on, you can do it. I don't care what you, I know you've flopped and all, I, I, we all have. Just come on. What can you say to make people see it that way? They see, I believe that's part of ministry. I really do. Because it's not a job. It's not a job. I know the people that hired me here were very sincere and all of that. But it's not a job. You don't do this for money. It has nothing to do with where you get paid or not. It's a call. It's not an assignment. It's a calling. And your job is to prepare. I mean, you don't just sit around and play golf all day and come in the pulpit and expect to have something to say. No, your life is committed to the well-being of people. 
It, you study things and you think, boy, he, she, or they won't like this message. Is it in the Bible? Well, the only thing that will ever set anybody free is truth. You shall know the truth. Well, you know, if you say that, man, you're going to upset those people. Okay, then don't tell them the truth. Leave the truth out of their life so they won't be upset and never get fixed. But if you tell them the truth, man, they might leave. That's God's business, isn't it? Tell them the truth. Speak the truth. Well, there's a lot of truth in the Bible to be spoken. Paul said, I have not shunned in Acts 20, 27, he said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. In John chapter 6, the last part of John 6, Jesus saw all of his followers leave. You know why? Because he told them the truth. They didn't like the truth. They wanted a different kind of spicy or watered down or modified, updated truth, but not the truth. But Jesus said, will you go with them, Peter? You know what Peter said? Leave with them, you mean, Lord? He said, yeah. Where would I go? You have the words of life. And that's the difference that's supposed to happen. That's the distinction that's supposed to happen in each one of our lives is truth replaces opinions, ideas, or philosophies. We begin to major on the truth. But God uses people to do this. But it's a dedication that I have found. The ones that I have known that I respect that do this. It's a commitment that you make. Not only to God. But you're willing to undo yourself from anything in this life that you really, boy, I could do this or didn't know. I'm gonna, I can't do all of this. There's only one thing I can do, and that's this. I can't have anything interfering with this. This is my life. And so you give yourself to this. You pray for people. You study things. What do you study? Whatever God puts on your heart, whatever your need is. I think that's what the word feed means. And you give it as you can. And I know there's people sometimes they think, boy, he's killing me. They want to call 9-11, you know, come over here. Somebody's trying to kill us. I know that. But I know also the, the way we are by nature. We'll take the easy way out every time that we can. We'll look for some escape. There's something about us that doesn't want to endure hardness as a good soldier. We know the world looks down on this kind of lifestyle. We know our parents did and our friends forsook us. You know, and then you add tongues and casting out demons to that mix and washing feet. You cross the line. But it's part of truth. Truth contains all of that. And so you preach it. And you know when you preach it, you're going to lose this one or that one. You know, somebody is offended by a lot of things. You can preach on divorce and remarriage or about the medical world or about borrowing money. And people really get offended because, don't say that because I do that. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to make you feel better. I'm not singling you out to persecute you. I'm just telling you that what God says is better than that. You're not rejected. You're not cast out. You're just enlightened. We call it conscience. And boy, the conscience can do a number on your heart. You go pick up a rock to stone somebody, 
And Jesus said, whoever is without sin amongst you, cast the first stone. You know why they threw that rock down and walked off? Because my conscience bears witness to truth. Truth kept some lady alive. So you see, in Hebrews 13, he's talking about something here that we need to understand. Let's break it down. Let's take the first word, watch. Hebrews 13, verse 17 Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself, for they watch for your soul. Now, again, the word means to pay attention to you, to pay attention to your life, pay attention to things when you neglect things, to pay attention to the fact that you don't come except when you want to. It's hard to pastor anybody like that. They're the first to criticize you and the, the one that missed the most church meetings. That's part of it. That just goes with the calling. But he said, you pay attention to the spiritual needs in the church, the way people behave, the way people are acting. You're preaching about this on Sunday and Wednesday and another Sunday, another Wednesday, and then you hear about this person over here or this family or that person doing exactly the opposite. Now, I take it personal. Again, not against you. Like, what's wrong with you? I feel like that. But it comes right back to it. Now, before you go to fuss at somebody, you need to point that finger at yourself, preacher. Maybe you're not dealing with things that they need to have dealt with in their life in a way that they are getting the message. Well, now, I'm not God, and I can't make them believe. You know that. I can't make you be convicted any more than I can learn you. All I can do is teach and hopefully bathe it in prayer enough that when it comes out, you will hear it the way God intended for you to hear it more than the way I said it. Because God has a goal for us. He's building us up. Sometimes you break things down before we can build them up. But his word will do that. His word not only edifies and comforts us, but his word is also like a hammer. It's like fire. It's like a two-edged sword. You get the whole package because we all come from different backgrounds with different leanings and different problems and different things. And we're sitting here and everybody gets identified in some way. You don't sit here long unless God deals with you about something. I do the preaching. Sometimes I'm saying things and I thought, well, I just hurt myself. But that can happen. Do you believe a preacher can preach to himself without realizing it? What did I just say? You know, of course he can. So God wants to call your attention through ministry. Call attention to your weaknesses. Call attention to our failings. Call attention to the fact that you're really not trying very hard. You tried harder 10 years ago than you're trying now. Why should that be taken as a personal attack? Oh, he just... Why should that not be a constructive thing? Why should I not ask myself, is what I just heard true? Is what he just said true? Was I better off spiritually five years ago than I am now? I don't think in the last five years he's backed off very much from what the Bible says. So maybe I backed off. Maybe I'm not trying as hard. Maybe I'm getting used to the routine. You know, religion's like that. It's a routine. 
Maybe I'm getting used to the way we're doing things and having the assumption or assuming that I'm all right because I've been here this long. And yet you still got anger problems. You got other kind of things you're not doing well and you're still got money problems and parenting problems and nothing is changing. So I think the call of ministry as one who is a watchman, like he said in Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 17, he said, I have made thee a watchman over my people Israel, and when I give you a word, you warn them. So not every word is comforting and oozy and soft and fluffy. Sometimes the word is directed at a desire that God has to change something in your life. Quit it. Quit it. Paul said in Colossians 1 at the end of the chapter, he says, I warn every body I meet. And I know they don't like that, but you can't assume that everybody's all right because they're here. You keep teaching. And folks, let me tell you something. Would it not be right to keep teaching until you see change taking place and then keep on because God is going to change with truth? So you have to keep doing that. If you guys, any of you are called to be a minister, I don't know why you'd want to do it, but if God called you to do it, then he'll give you all the things that you need to do it with. But that's what he wants you to do. Keep your fingers there. We're going to come back to Hebrews 13, but 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. To the church, he writes this. And we beseech you, brethren to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Is this not true? Nobody can be over anybody if somebody doesn't want them to be over them. Is it not true this then, that a man is not the head of his house if his wife won't let him be? If she won't submit to him, he's not the head of his house. And she lets him know that she knows far enough about it. He's not going to tell her yakety, yakety, yak, yak, dripping in the attic and all that kind of stuff, yakking. He's not the head of his house. His house is out of order. When he comes to church, it's out of order. When you preach about it, she's offended. You know why? Because she's guilty. So what does the preacher do? Lord, don't run her off and don't knock her out. But what can I say to get her? What, Lord, give me some way to say what she needs to hear so that she'll repent and humble herself before you. Is that okay to do that? Or should you just have a mat on when you come in here? I don't like any of you, and I'm going to wear you out. <laughs> no. There's nothing in the Bible about being called to do that. You warn people. And I think you said in verse 12 there, of verse Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, he said, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and what? Admonish you. Admonishment goes a step further than doctrine. Now, doctrine is in the Bible is a word for teaching, instruction. And it's one thing to instruct. And I think that this is where I've come to believe that a minister could benefit from higher education. You avail yourself to somebody who really does know quite a bit more about it than you do. And the only reason you want to do that is not so I can say, I've got a degree. No. The reason you do that is so you're more useful to God 
in being able to affect people with truth. And you're able to add more to, and instead of just reading the Bible, you can add to it. Now, exhortation is not just teaching and pointing out what a verse means and something about it historically. Exhortation is calling your attention to it and kind of giving you some details about it and making it personal. That's what an exhorter does. That's what exhortation does. A teacher is one thing, and an exhorter is one that drives you up a wall. A teacher can teach and go home, and he's done, but an exhorter presses the issue because there's a care, a concern, that there is a need that you have. You may not see it, but you've got to get this. This message is vital. This word, word, whatever the message is you're hearing, this is really important. You need to hear this. Let me quote for you something from Albert Barnes. I like his commentary concerning the word watch, for they watch for your souls back in Hebrews 13. Barnes says to put in mind and then to warn, entreat, and exhort. It is a part of the duty of a minister to put his people in mind of the truth, to warn them of danger to exhort them to perform their duty, to admonish them if they go astray. Let me tell you something. I don't know that any man enjoys doing that unless he's, he's cut different. I don't know of anybody that enjoys doing it because, you know, there's something basic, the urge to be liked, the urge to be accepted, appreciated, and to slant your whole life and your preaching towards gaining friends. And yet the problem is when you start preaching and appealing to being liked and all of that, you're leaving a lot of truth out because you know that truth is like a sword, a two-edged sword. It hurts. And you tell people, you know, you're lazy. You're not trying hard. Or you could tell a person, you know, you moved here from Timbuktu. You came down here because you said, well, the Lord brought us here. And you come here once in a while, you attend once a month. What if you admonish that person? Maybe that person is here tonight. I haven't even looked. But what if you admonish a person and say, you could have been backslidden where you were. You didn't have to come down here to act like that. And I said, well, that's smart, Alec. Well, it's not meant to be all that smart, Alec, but it did make a point. Some people that are worse off now than they were years ago before they came here, and now they come here, and things are a little worse for their life now. You didn't have to come all the way to Kentucky to get watered up like that. You could have gotten watered up where you were. You didn't have to come all the way down here to be hard-headed. You could have stayed where you were and been hard-headed. God doesn't want hard heads. Quit being hard-headed. Humble yourself before God. Quit acting like you know something you don't know. Is it all right to say stuff like that? Well, what's the purpose in saying it? To drive them off? No, I don't want to drive them off. Him or her. Wouldn't want to drive them off. I want to keep them. They have souls. A soul has a need to be changed and transformed. If it's not being transformed, it's in danger. And you can't just let that go and say, oh, well, that's their problem. No, it's your problem because you have to give an account for their soul. You're answerable for them. 
And sometimes you tell God, you know, Lord, I don't have a joyful report about this one or that one. I can't say I'm so glad that they're here and that they've added so much to us and, and they're such a good encouragement to others around them. Can't say that. They come here, they fold their arms, they never do anything different since they've got here. They come sometimes, they miss a lot. Lord, I don't know what, I, when I pray, I, I don't know what to tell you about these folks. That, they're not doing well here. They won't listen to me. I try, but they won't listen. And he said that would be unprofitable for you, didn't he? Does that mean that God listens to a minister? Well, I'm just asking you. I'm not, you know, I know I are one. Not, not a good one, and you know that, but I, that's what you got. Uh, you must, because he said, is any sick among you? Call who? Call the elders, the ministers, and let them pray for you. If anybody ought to be able to pray the prayer of faith, they should. So, I mean, it's not like you got a novice trying to find something to preach on. I remember a fellow one time, long time ago, <laughs> he came to my office and he said, can I ask you a question? We had been talking and he didn't exactly have a lot of regard for me. I knew that before. I knew that while we were talking, but he was very congenial. I knew what he was saying. I knew what he was thinking. He said, can I ask you a question? Have at it. He said, do you ever study? I remember thinking, study. How you spell it? <laughs> See, I could have said in a very smart alecky way, because I grew up smart alec. I could have said, Well no, why would I want to study? I'm called to preach. I know just everything I need to know. He said, Well, you know, I thought you'd just maybe come in, open the Bible, and you wherever it falls, you start preaching. Now see that was a dig. He knew better than that. I wish I could do that. Man, wouldn't that be something? I'd turn over there to the begats and I'd make something out of all that. <laughs> but I don't know that I know how to do that. But anyway, you get all kinds of people that test your spirit. You get them around you, they test you too. You're no different than I am. You've got to give an account to God as much as I do. What has he said in James 3 and verse 1? He said, be not many masters. The word means teachers. For you know that you'll receive the greater condemnation. When you get in that pulpit, you've got all these people. You've got to watch for their souls. If God sent them here, they have a need. You're supposed to feed them. And if they don't want to feed, then, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, then you've got to give him salt pills. You've got to work on them. And if they want to leave, then there's nothing you can do about it. Just like he said, watchman on the wall, about I give you a word and warn them in, in Ezekiel. He said, if they won't listen to you and the enemy comes and they die, their blood is not on your head. But if you got a word from me and you don't warn them, warn them, you don't admonish them, you don't exhort them, and you leave them be because you don't want to hurt their feelings or lose their fellowship, and they die, their blood will be on your head, your head preacher. So, purpose. Barnes also said, it is for your own good that they watch. 
And this shows also the true principle on which authority should be exercised in a church. It should be in such a way as to promote the salvation of the people. I believe that. This is what watching is all about. It's wakefulness, one who stays awake. Now, I do sleep at night, but it's a spiritual meaning. One who is constantly observing his flock. Know the well-being of your flock, it says in Proverbs. Know your sheep. Get to know them. See their needs. And sometimes you can't just come out and tell them what's wrong with them, but you say, Lord, give me a message, something that everybody else can benefit from, but we can zero in on that person and their convictions so that they'll begin to understand that they need to do something a little differently than they're doing. How else is a church going to be built together? I mean, building is construction. It has to do with sawing and nailing. And, and I remember watching a man once trying to break a brick to put over the garage door. He needed a half brick on the end. And I remember sitting in the car, the guys with me went inside the house or something, and I was sitting there watching this guy. It was a divine moment for me. And the guy up there had some bricks, and he broke it, and he threw it down. It didn't fit. And I thought, huh. He broke another, broke crooked, and he threw that one down. And he kept tapping on that thing, and he finally got one, tapped it just right, and it broke off, and it fit perfectly. He put his mortar up there and fixed it up. And I said, you know, I wonder if that's a picture of the church. A lot of people come into it, but not all of them will stay with it or are useful to God. Some just don't want to cooperate. But I take it personal. What can I do? What can I say? What kind of a confrontation, a message? What can I say? Give me something to say that'll soften that heart. Give me something to say to show that woman that, you know, while you got all the beautiful smiles, your husband's not a very happy man because, you know, you don't have much respect for him. The way you act around him, the way you treat him, the way you talk about him, you got a problem. So teach about it. And you women... You women sometimes are so disrespectful about the way you talk about your husbands in your little groups. What's the matter with you? You can't love somebody and tear them down at the same time. What you're trying to do is get a message across to somebody that, you know, I'm aware of what you're doing. Sometimes you might use a little too personal illustration until they go, "Uh uh-oh, now that's me and you now. But in the bigger picture, you can't please God You can't find his movement in your home or his healing and his deliverance. His purpose will never be realized in your life until you submit to his way and humble yourself before God. Until you begin to tighten up and let God be God and let your husband be your husband or your wife be your wife if it goes to that. Go back to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. The word give account must give an account. Does your Bible say that? The word account is our word logos. It simply means word or revelation. He must give a word. He must give an account. Listen at Barnes again. To do them good, to comfort and edify them, to give account. Then to feed them with knowledge and understanding and for the salvation of them. 
with God's prescribed provisions and not lean to the right or to the left, nor add to or take anything away from it. Give an account. Don't back off. Don't back down. Don't add anything to it. You don't need to add anything to the gospel to make it appealing. You just speak the truth. This is the work of God. If I'm trying to get you saved, I doubt if you will. But if I preach a word that does save and God chooses to save you, even though I'm preaching on the begats, do you believe God could take the begats and convict you? Well, of course he could. So it's not so much the cleverness of the preacher and how smooth and eloquent he is. But like Paul said, my speech and my preaching is not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but it's in demonstration of the spirit and the power of God, a human being just like you, ordinary, flawed, can't even work a phone person. But God gives you a word that way. Don't glorify him. He's just a hose. I mean, hoses aren't worth much if they're not hooked up to water, are they? Oh, I got a gold-plated hose. It came from a hose country over in some country that makes hoses, and this was gold-plated and diamond-studded hose. Woo! What good is it? Well, you can look at it. It's not worth a nickel when you want to water your lawn if it ain't hooked up to a faucet. Paul said, it's not me, it's God. What I'm saying is not my word, it's his word. We're just calling attention to it so we can understand that God teaches us this way. God deals with us this way. God's not mad at us. The preacher's not mad at us. God wants us to know that he cares. He wants things to happen well. I told the Lord today, I want everybody in this church to be totally, fully, manifestly healed with no pain, no agonies, Everybody well, everybody out of debt, nobody owing anybody anything, and everybody loving everybody. That's what I want. <laughs> How big is that? <laughs> and everybody live be 130. I don't know about that. All I'm saying is that what is given to us from healing, we talked about Sunday, to deliverance from weaknesses and failings, from being manipulated and controlled by the devil in your life, in your family, in your home, or in the church, or in your job site. All those weaknesses of lying and cheating and stealing and, and trying to take advantage of other people. That's all the devil. To get delivered from all of that is to experience salvation. And you preach that. You preach that because that's what salvation means. It includes that. We want everybody to be well and whole. Like he said, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment, James said. That's where we are. That's what's going on. This is what God is doing to build his church. But I want you to go home tonight. I want you to think about this. Just a question I want to ask you. In what way am I responding to what God is saying? Not to preacher. I don't believe it because the preacher said it. You shouldn't believe what I said because I said it. You know that. I can say the right thing and say it with a good anointing. But your responsibility is to search the scriptures to see if it's true. For that's where conviction comes. If what I said was right, deal with it. 
if you're not being a loving husband to your wife or your children in your family, if you're aggravating people, if you're not trying, if you just come and fold your arms and you never read your Bible, you never study, you never pray, deal with it. Deal with it. You can take that personal if you want to, but deal with it. How many of you know Jesus is coming? Jesus is not coming back for people that are standing afar off, you know, hope and everything. You know, I don't know. Listen, I press in. I want to be well. I want to be well. I do better what I'm doing when I'm well. My wife likes me better when I'm well. Actually, she doesn't. Because <laughs> it wouldn't matter if I was well or not to her. You look better when you're well. You study better when you're well. You sound better when you're well. What if everybody in this room, every credit card, every banknote was P-I-F, paid in full? Would you be happy? Is that part of the gospel? Well, you find out. You determine. Let's preach it if it is. If that's what God says, let's say that. If God wants you well and not sick, let's demand that. Let's demand that of ourselves. Yeah, but what about this and what about that one? There is nothing you can do about this one or that one. What's happened this year, what's happened has happened. We can't change any of it. But we certainly can learn from it. And we can tighten up and come out swinging. And fight the good fight of faith. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. Teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Now the exhortation, unite my heart, urge me on here, unite my heart to fear your name. I want to come in here with purpose. I belong here. I'm here for a reason. God's going to use me here. He's going to prepare me here. There's an aim that I have of being here, something that I'm focusing on, to be like Christ. Oh, come. No, sir, that's what he said. That's the truth. That's what I want. That's what we're trying to do. So when the preacher goes to hollering and yelling, yelling, when the preacher goes to hollering and yelling, instead of hollering and yelling, just believe that there's a reason for that. Well, he sounds like he's after me. He might well be. But it's not to destroy you and tear you down. It's to get you back on the road. And when he starts talking about dating and all the stuff that goes on when you know, face comes to face, and, and he starts hollering about that. Don't take that wrong. What does he know about it? Probably a lot more than you do. Just say, you know, I'm going to believe that there was an anointing tonight to get my attention, to keep me from doing anything, getting in any kind of a situation that I'm going to regret, feel ashamed of, or have bitter feelings about. All I got to do is just maintain and hold my place with God and not violate his word. Is it right to preach that? It sure is. I'm going to get into it next week a little bit more. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's where we'll go next week. Bow your head with me. Father, in Jesus' name, bless this word to our heart. Help us understand what you're saying, to enjoy it, to prepare our hearts for it, to be found faithful when Jesus comes. Not one of those that are drawing back and shrugging the shoulder, but those that are pressing in. Those of us who come to say, here, my Lord, send me. Use me, Lord. Ask you to bless these people. And may what I said, Lord, today come to pass. May they all be well. May they all be out of debt. May every demon flee from this whole church. Set us free. In Jesus' name. Amen.